Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor at the Altamont Enterprise. I'm here at the beautiful Siena College campus today with Carla Safka, who's a professor professor of social work. And we ran across her because Rose Schneider was writing about a lost gravestone that had ended up in Gilderland and partly with the help of Carla, found its way back to Westerlow. So she teaches about death and dying. And I would just like to start by hearing, how did you come to this very unusual field? What led you here? I'm not sure led is the right word. It was kind of a fluke. Unlike a lot of my colleagues who do work in thanatology, which is the study of death, dying, loss, and grief, most people have a significant, profound personal experience that kind of leads them down that path. But for me, I was a sophomore in college and ran across a biology class in my pre-med flunk-out course that got the best of me for a lot of reasons. And so I needed to figure out what I wanted to study to be able to help people because that was my main goal. I was taking an abnormal psychology class that summer and the teaching assistant had us read an article about whether there's a correlation between when someone is born and the date that someone dies that might reflect a will to live. And so that was kind of a fascinating thing to think about. And at that time, I was needing to use uh, computers systems that were brand new. I was needing to learn how to enter data on a line editor for a research project that I was helping somebody with. To make that task interesting, I cut out obituaries from the local newspaper to learn how to enter alpha characters, their name, numeric characters, the date of birth, the date of death, and then I put in there whether the spouse was living or deceased, the cause of death, if it was stated or could be inferred. And at the end of the summer, I had this giant file with lots of people's information in it. One of my friends said, what are you going to do with this? I had just done it to make the task of learning the computer fun, but my friend said, you should do your honors thesis on this. And I got to thinking, well, studying how people deal with death is intriguing, but the people who've died, I can't ask them what influenced when they died, in a traditional way at least. But look at all these people who are around to talk about what it's like to lose a spouse. So I designed a research project on widowhood, and talked to over 70 people who taught me about their experiences, told me their stories, and I was instantly intrigued by how different and unique all their stories were and discovered that I wanted to gain the skills and the knowledge to help people coping with loss and ended up getting my master's in social work, doing clinical work with hospice, doing a practicum in a funeral home. And since that summer, I guess that would have been the summer of 83, I've been intrigued by death, dying, grief, and loss, and here I am. Well, it's certainly something that all of us have to deal with in some way or another, but it's often something that's not talked about, let alone taught in a college. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little about, you mentioned when you started with the idea of pre-med, you wanted to help people, and if you could just kind of tell us what kind of things you've learned in this very long <laughs> span of time dealing with this as a subject, what, what kinds of things help people to know as, as a body of knowledge about, about death? 
Well, I think if you if you snuck into my class that I teach her at Siena, we talk about all kinds of different things. So, for example, yesterday in class, we were talking about end-of-life decision-making. So if somebody is diagnosed with a life-threatening or a terminal illness, what kinds of decisions do they have to make about their medical care, and how do they communicate that to their family or friends, the person that you would trust to make decisions about your life if you were unable to speak for yourself? So we talked about advanced directives such as a health care proxy or living wills, and we talked about how do you have conversations with people about a very difficult, challenging topic. Because as you've kind of implied, it's not something that people talk about openly or easily unless you are in a class like this or unless you have a crisis that happens in your life where you're forced to talk about a topic that's not really comfortable. So they learned about the different types of procedures and documents that are legal in the state of New York or the state wherever they want to live. Um, and how you go about filling those out. So how do you pick a healthcare proxy? What kind of things do you take into account when you have to decide who you would trust with making life or death decisions for you if you're not able to speak for yourself? So who would you choose to be your healthcare proxy? And then what kind of information do you have to think about or anticipate to write a living will? So would you want to be kept alive under what circumstances? So they have to really take a leap, I think, out of their current experience because my students are all vibrant, healthy, young people. In their 20s, yeah. And it's very, I mean, it's, it's interesting just to have the conversation, why am I forcing you to do this at this time? in your life because I feel very strongly as a death educator that you should have these conversations before you need to. You should not wait until there's a crisis or there's an imminent need for people to know what your wishes would be if something drastic or terrible happens to you. Because oftentimes in my clinical days it would be those conversations that families had to have very unexpectedly if there was an accident where someone who wasn't old enough, so to speak. It wasn't a timely crisis. So you have a 25-year-old who's in a car accident, and all of a sudden they can't speak, and you've never had a conversation with your young adult about under what circumstances would they want to be kept alive versus under what circumstances would they want to be allowed to die. And thinking about what does quality of life look like for you, and how do you balance quantity of life and quality of life decision making when you're in that spot. So this is something you'd recommend people do even at a very young age uh, because you never know what's going to happen with an accident. I know from talking to you a little before, you have a brilliant daughter at Cornell. Have you had this conversation with her? Have you talked to her about it? Yeah. Oh, abs- absolutely, because we've had situations in our family with Gwen's grandparents mm-hmm. where she's watched what has to happen when somebody um, is diagnosed with cancer or she understands how challenging it can be when somebody all of a sudden is losing consciousness and they can't wake them up and they can't tell you what's causing that to happen. So the fact that um, her grandfather had had conversations with you know, his wife and his kids about at what point do we want to call in hospice, at what point do we stop having treatment 
they had had all those conversations and she knows that I have had conversations with my parents about what they want because I've been appointed as a health care proxy for them so she's she and I guess having a mom who does this stuff <laughs> makes it different uh, in the in its own right because she knows what I do and she understands what I teach about but we had conversations in class about at what age did my students think that these conversations should happen. And we had this discussion right after we pulled up a big chart on the screen that looks at causes of death based on your age and your gender. And when we looked at the column between the ages of you know 14 and 24, they saw that the leading causes of death were not illness. They were all sudden, violent, unanticipated deaths accidental death, car, car crashes are a huge cause of death among their demographic, and scarily, homicide is right up there in the top five causes of death for their age group. So they realized very quickly that they might not have any control over when that conversation and that information that you get during the conversation, their family's going to need to know what mm -hmm. they would want without any warning. Well, another thing that I wanted to ask you about, because you've been in this field for decades, um, if you've noticed changes in the way people deal with mourning, I know you mentioned, and I'd like you to talk a little about a conference that's coming up, but I myself noticed just from the time between when my mother died and my father died, the way people responded now is through email <laughs> and rather than little written notes and when I would go to the graveyard to my mother's grave there would be nobody there um, I remember seeing pictures from my grandparents of a Sunday picnic every Sunday at, at the graveyard where their relatives were buried and it just seems like as a society I don't think it's that we're not mourning anymore. I think it's that we've probably changed the way that we mourn. And if you could just kind of talk a little about some of those changes, it would be interesting. Well, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating thing to talk about because I think, as you've illustrated, there have been a lot of changes. So are the traditional rituals for mourning and grieving still there? I think the answer is yes, but how people participate in them and how they're used maybe has changed. So, for example, the percentage of people who choose to be cremated as opposed to buried has changed quite a bit in the United States. Is that because of costs, or that is that is one factor, and it's hard <coughs> to know what all the factors are. But funerals are expensive, but a funeral is also a business. It just happens to be a business that revolves around something that's challenging for people to think about having to pay, and and the cost gets tricky. But they have to pay the rent on their buildings. They have to buy liability insurance to allow people to come in from the public. They have to pay their staff. They have to buy extremely expensive hearses for the people who choose to use them. So there are a lot of costs, as there are in any business, that they have to take care of. And, and I'm a big advocate of the funeral profession because they do things that most people would not have the comfortability or the skills to take care of. So I think they they deserve to be uh, lauded for what they the service they provide for us and and it's 
society doesn't understand why the costs are there. So that's my little plug for being understanding of the funeral industry because they do something very important. They provide opportunities for people to come and do all the things that a funeral is designed to do, to provide an opportunity for people to come and, and say goodbye to someone who has died, to provide an opportunity for people to come and express support to the loved ones who are grieving as a result of that death, to serve that practical function of figuring out how to handle the consequences of death because something has to be done, whether that's cremation, whether that's burial. What seems to be changing over time, families are no longer all living in the same place. Geographic dispersion has had a huge impact on a family member's ability to be part of those rituals. I'm thinking of a death in our family where um, my daughter was in Iceland at the time that her grandmother died. And we had to make really challenging decisions about was it feasible for her to come that far. And some of it was practical. She would have been missing classes. So people have very, very busy lives. And sometimes it's hard to take the time to travel a distance to go to a funeral and participate in these rituals that are so important. There's also a cost, as you mentioned before. So sometimes decisions are driven by the cost of having a funeral. Is it less expensive to cremate someone as opposed to bury someone? And the answer is absolutely. But some people's religious or spiritual beliefs or their personal preferences don't match up with the least expensive method of taking care of, of someone who's died. So I think there are all these different factors that influence what kind of rituals we participate and how we make decisions. The other thing that has changed drastically is the availability of technology. You mentioned in your example, and much to the dismay of the Hallmark Company, people don't necessarily go to the card store because you can't find them as easily anymore. I think all the Hallmark stores, the one in Stuyvesant Plaza closed, you know, they're, they're hard to find. So going out and buying a card and addressing it, putting on a stamp and sending it in the mail isn't the way people express their condolences anymore. They send an email or they go on social media, right? And, and the whole issue of how social media has influenced and changed the way we deal with death and grief is a whole other fascinating topic that will lead us back to the conference you Good, mentioned Good, because I want to hear, uh, just give us the details about place and time in the conference, but more importantly, the substance of it. Right. So, so what's the right way to express your sympathy when someone dies? Should you physically go to the funeral home if there is a visitation or a wake and express your condolences in person? Or is it okay to send the email or to post a message on someone's Facebook page, I'm so sorry for your loss? And, and at least Facebook now has come up with an alternative for liking something <laughs> because one of the biggest questions I would get from students or other people who know that I study how social media has changed the way we grieve is, okay, so somebody posts on their, their feed that a family member has died. Am I supposed to like that? Because there's a mismatch between the intention of what you want to say and the implication of a thumbs up. Right. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, good, your mom died. You know, that's that's not necessarily what you want to say. So the fact that the Facebook team now gives you the option to um, put other emoticons there to put a little heart sign, and then people will say, you know, hugs. I'm thinking of you, prayers, all those those comments that are supportive. 
that's a way to support someone who's grieving that you might say, well, maybe I don't need to go to the funeral home uh, to the wake or I don't need to go to the funeral because I've already told them I'm thinking of them. So if you talk to funeral directors, they are starting to notice that the numbers of people who come to those rituals is changing. And is that because of technology? Quite possibly, yes. Is it because people are in such busy lives that they don't have the time anymore and can't take the time to do that? Possibly. Are people so dispersed from their families that they cannot physically get back for those rituals and traditions at the time of someone's death? Possibly. So there are so many things that are changing the way we do do death, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, going back to your very initial study that you did as an honors thesis, as I understand it, as an undergraduate, where you talk to these variety of widows and their way of coping. Do you find that, well, maybe I should just ask first, what what kinds of things did those widows rely on and how, how did it vary? What, what did you discover when you talked to them? Well, what was interesting, I did talk to some men too, so I had widows and oh, widowers. No, that's, yeah. no, that's okay. Yeah. Um, and they were of all ages, some were as young as 40 and some were in their 70s and 80s. So how they coped with and responded to the loss of a spouse varied so tremendously based on ages, based on uh, their roles in the person's life. So, for example, some people were struggling with very basic things, and you have to remember this was like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So generational differences, if I talk to widows and widowers now, I'd learn different things. But the 70 and 80-year-olds back then, some of the women didn't know how to put gas in their car. Some of the men didn't know how to cook mm-hmm. um, or didn't know how to balance their checkbook. Some very practical life skills that were very gender-based at the time that they just simply did not know how to do. Or you would have some people who had been married for 40, 50 years, and they did not remember what life was like without their husband or wife. So they had to figure out how to redefine who they were and to figure out how to redefine their roles in life and what to do with their time because they were no longer maybe a caregiver if their husband or wife had been ill before they died or they didn't know how to structure their time as a single person because they hadn't had to do that for 50 years. And then there were folks whose biggest challenge was trying to help other people figure out how to be helpful to them. The awkward conversations, people not knowing what to say to them Mm -hmm. after a loss. Because most people, unless you sit down with a, a parent or another person and say, all right, what do I say that's helpful? What should I avoid saying so that I don't offend someone or hurt their feelings? Most people don't take a class about that. So you have give to us give us the crib notes on that. Give us the the short version, just because that is something we all face. And um, I'll I got off the track of where I was leading with this, but this is so important. I'm just wondering if you can give us kind of the cliff notes on how what what we should avoid or what we should do when someone dies, and we're offering our condolences. Well, most most people will say that the, the, the awkwardness is that people don't know whether or not it's okay to talk to them. 
sometimes people are worried, all right, if I mention um, that I'm sorry for their loss or that I, you know, I'm thinking about them after the death of, of your loved one, is that going to be upsetting? Is that going to cause them to cry? Mm-hmm. And, and what I hear most often is that people wish that their friends and family weren't so afraid to just bring it up because it hurts more when no one talks about it than anything somebody could say by bringing it up. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's I guess, the first message is don't be hesitant or reluctant to acknowledge that they're grieving and to tell them that you're thinking about it. Most people put a lot of pressure on themselves to have the perfect thing to say. And the best advice I can give is that it's not so much what you say, but being willing to listen. Because most people are perfectly happy just talking. They don't need you to have the perfect thing to say. They just need to know that people care and are willing to listen. So that's, that's I think, a good piece of advice. The, the other thing to do is be cautious about using cliches or platitudes. Oh, it'll get better with time. You know, and maybe that's true. It, it does get better with time, but at that moment in time, that's not where the griever is at. So listening, acknowledging, and validating that they're probably not feeling very good. This must be a really hard time for you. Tell me how it's been, and then listen, and not worry about having the perfect response to say, because most people aren't expecting that at all not um, necessarily saying something if somebody says oh I've had this loss well at least this didn't happen to you you know trying to one up them Mm. and sometimes that happens especially if the person who's trying to be supportive has also had a loss in their life it's very easy sometimes to shift the focus to you and then the person who you were trying to support just kind of gets lost in the dust. So stay focused on the other person. Don't try to shift it and compare maybe what you've experienced out loud, but use what you've experienced to maybe say, well, I know sometimes when people are grieving, this happens. Is that something that's happening to you? As opposed to saying, well, this happened to me and it was terrible. Because that shifts the focus away from what you want to be doing, which is supporting them, to having that person potentially needing to take care of you. Good advice. Where I was heading before I took you off the track was in this study of widowers and widows, I wondered because of the changes in how we are as a society now, if the supports are the same. Um, We've noticed in our weekly newspaper, we no longer get the weekly write-ups from the various groups like the Masons or the Kiwanis, the, you know, the coming together of people to, um, to form a sort of societal link. And I'm just wondering when you were mentioning earlier, like someone will put hugs or put a, you know, an emoji on a Facebook page, if, if it is offering the same kind of support that I was thinking maybe the widows and widowers got back in the 1980s when you were interviewing them is is the one a substitute for the other like if the funeral homes are noticing fewer people are are coming to the to the wake or to the service does is there somehow a a gap or a loss in the kind of support that people are getting after someone dies or that's a really fascinating question and I'll I'll try to answer it in the best way that I can because the the 
person you'd have to ask would be somebody who's actively grieving to say, have you noticed a difference in the amount of face-to-face support or in-person support that you're getting? Because it sounds to me like those social groups, that might be what you're referring to. Um, So is there a difference in how it feels to get support when somebody is standing right there versus reading something on a Facebook feed or getting an email or a less personal message of support? And, And I think in my life there's nothing as powerful as a hug so if, if you're one of those persons who likes to have somebody to hold your hand or somebody to give you a physical hug and have that tangible support it's probably less helpful but there may also be people who get embarrassed or um, aren't as comfortable with talking to somebody face-to-face for whom being able to type on a computer and think about what you say before it comes out or becomes public might be more comfortable for someone. Uh, We talk a lot in my class about your grieving style. Some people are very public grievers. They go out, they seek out that support. When they see people they know, they want to talk about what's happening to them because they're comfortable with that conversation. They're comfortable with expressing their emotions in public. But then there are other people who are what we would call a private griever who tend to be less comfortable with public display of emotion, who tend to have less comfort talking about how they feel. And for someone like that to be able to go online in the middle of the night when they can't sleep, which is a common challenge that some people experience when they're grieving, to have that support available 24 hours a day, seven days a week when you can go online, read the comments on your Facebook feed, look at the pictures, reread the memories that people are sharing about your loved one who's died on your own time in private can be much more helpful for some people than that face-to-face conversation that you described might happen in a social group. So it really depends on what helps the person to cope. Fascinating. When you mentioned this idea of public grieving, it flashed from my mind the idea even in my childhood when someone had lost uh, like a family member the tradition was to wear black and this went on you know for quite some time and um, the only group I know that still puts the bunting in black over the door are the fire departments in our area they still do that when they've lost one of their firefighters but I just wonder if you have any thoughts on the sort of lack of Spectacle, that's maybe too strong of a word, but lack of you know, physical proclamation of grief. A symbolic or ritual display that says, yeah. I'm grieving. Well, right. and, and there are still some customs out there that do this. Um, I know the firehouse in McCownville does the same thing when mm-hmm. they have a member who, who dies. They, they display that, and that's what you would call a mourning ritual, mm-hmm. a public symbolic display that someone has experienced a loss. So, for example, um, I'm not sure now that, that people of the Jewish faith still do this. There used to be the rending of the garments where they would physically tear their clothing. Now I think there's a black ribbon sometimes that people wear to symbolize the same thing. Uh, sometimes people use 
you're familiar with the awareness ribbons, right? There are different colors mm -hmm. for different causes. Mm -hmm. And some um, support organizations for grieving people have created a black awareness band that can symbolize grief because that's that traditional black color, but it's displayed in a different way. So it might not be wearing solid black to, to demonstrate that you're mourning, but you might wear a black awareness ribbon on your clothing or wear one of those um, plastic awareness bracelets mm -hmm. that symbolizes grief. I think after 9-11, we saw a resurgence in some ways of more of those public displays of mourning because the number of people who died on that day was so significant. The firehouses did it. Um, some family members who lost loved ones did it. Some corporations did it. Athletes sometimes will wear a band when they have a teammate who dies. I think there have been some athletes who've died in the last couple years where teams have done some displays to commemorate their loss. But you're right, it, it's changed, and it's not quite quite as obvious, because now you read sometimes in obituaries where the deceased or the family will make a specific request that they don't want people to wear black. They want people to wear, what was one I saw once, they wanted somebody, the mourners to wear Yankees gear, because they were a Yankees fan, or um, sometimes they'll say, I want you to wear bright clothing because I want my funeral to be a celebration of my life, not mourning my death. So I think the way that we celebrate people's lives, it's shifted from kind of the heavy mourning rituals to more memorialization and celebration of life rather than a commemoration of a death. And, and funeral homes will talk about, too, some of the unusual requests that they get um, for funerals. I mean, when I take my students to the funeral home as part of class, because my philosophy is you should learn about the decisions you have to make before you need to make them. And I think, what was the funeral director telling us? There's 81 decisions that you have to make to plan a funeral. And so learning about what those decisions are and what your options are at a time you don't have to make the choice in 24 to 48 hours is a real eye-opening experience because then you can truly think about, well, what do I want and why do I want what I want? So they've, they, you know, bring people's personal possessions into the funeral home and all the picture boards and sometimes there's video displays and slideshows that illustrate the person's life as opposed to only focusing on the fact that they've died. Having um, interesting music choices at funerals, it's not always religious or spiritual songs anymore. You get pop music, you get Motown stuff, you get whatever the person would have listened to in life. And, and so just the way we commemorate a death has changed drastically from the time when I was younger. Yes. Um, and another thing I wonder if you might comment on that I've noticed increasingly more, because being in a newspaper, unfortunately, we have to cover a lot of cataclysmic deaths and just yesterday I took a call from a man and did a very short story because um, a 22 year old had died at an intersection in a fiery crash and he was building a cross a Christian cross and he told me the words he'd write on it and he was painting it orange because the young man that died was a landscape worker and always wore orange and I see all over our coverage area after we've done the story these sort of instant memorials that um, 
you know, they almost seem to spontaneously pop up, not always with calling the newspaper to let people know, just, you know, maybe friends gathering and leaving mementos. Or uh, Do you have any thoughts on that? Because that seems like a, a growing trend that wasn't around when I was young. Well, roadside memorials or spontaneous memorials, they're called... Um, We've seen so many examples of that in the Albany area because of the, the extraordinary number of homicides that oh, have happened recently. in that city yeah. recently. And so I think, I think people need a way to express their, not only their loss, but sometimes their outrage at the way that these deaths are happening. So it's, it's a public way to commemorate or celebrate somebody's life and to mourn the absence of their life now that they've died. And I think you're right that that didn't used to happen as much. I think it's interesting, too, that there are other rituals that have evolved. Have you ever seen a ghost bike? Yes, actually, I have. A white... bicycle painted white that is usually in a place where a bike accident has happened and someone has lost their life in that spot. Uh, I know I know there's one that I saw recently on Washington Avenue extension when you're turning in to go to Walmart and um, Home Depot there's a ghost bike on that corner on the side by McDonald's. And there used to be one on Western Avenue by the Snowco sign down by UAlbany. That's where I saw one recently, too. I think that one's been removed for a couple years. But that's, um, in a way, to memorialize someone's life, but also it's a warning. Like a cautionary. A cautionary to say, all right, be respectful of the bicyclist and be careful so that another death doesn't occur. So it's, it's... not only serving as a memorial, but a cautionary warning. Well, our time has gone really fast. Are there any closing thoughts or things I haven't asked you think are really important for people to know? Well, I think um, we mentioned a conference. We should probably tell people about that. The presence of social media and grieving online has caused this whole new area of study to evolve called digital legacy and digital immortality. So when you think about all the digital stuff you create in life, your emails, your online accounts, your social media accounts, your digital footprint is all of that evidence that you leave in the digital world. So now people are needing to think about what do I want to happen to my digital legacy when I die? And so there's going to be a conference on Siena's campus on October 27th between about 11 in the morning and 4 in the afternoon where we're going to have people who come in and talk about that topic. So, for example, how do you plan for your digital legacy like you would your physical will? You have to think about what to do with your physical stuff. What do you want to happen to your digital stuff when you die. So do you have uh, a legacy contact for your Facebook page? Have you appointed somebody to take care of that when you die? 
have you shared your passwords, access to your online accounts, so that people don't have to fight with all of the companies to justify getting access to your accounts if they don't have those passwords? Do you want your Facebook page memorialized when you die, which means it gets frozen in time as it was when it's memorialized, or do you want people to be able to continue to post things on your page? How do you want all of that to happen? So that's going to be a fascinating opportunity for people to come and learn about this if it's new to them. Is that or something people would codify in a will, the way they do the personal possessions? Is that There's actually a new uh, area of law that's forming, digital estate planning. where you have to think about that. And there are actually some laws that are starting to form about how that should work and who should have the right or responsibility to do that. So um, you can come and get practical information for your own life. We're inviting helping professionals who work with individuals dealing with maybe life-threatening illness or end-of-life illness to think about how do you weave conversations about this kind of planning into the same care you would provide for planning for your physical legacy. And is this conference open to the public? It's open to the public as long as we have seats available in the auditorium on campus to hold them. So, so I think we have about 120. That they to well, there is a, a website for the Digital Legacy Association. This is the uh, organization in England that is bringing their conference to the United States for the first time. And they have... Um, information about social media wills. They have all kinds of tools that educate you about this planning, but there's also a link to register for the conference. So I guess the best thing that I could do is to provide you with that URL and you can post it on your paper's website. Yeah, and we'll put it under your picture, too. (laughs) We run that in the paper. Well, thank you so much. I've learned so much from talking to you. It's been great. Well, it's my honor to share what I've learned with you.